Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Lisa Federenko is passionate about helping create a fairer world through increased diversity and sustainability. After completing a triple major in advanced mathematics, computer science and econometrics in her combined commerce science degree at Sydney University, she began her career in equity research sales at Credit Suisse before moving into a range of finance roles spanning value investing at Montgomery Investment Management, Venture Capital at Reinventure and in Venture Debt at Marshalls Investment Management. Lisa now is the investment manager at Alberts, a unique family business with over 130 years of history and a commitment to creating a culturally rich, inclusive, healthy and sustainable world. Lisa's fluent in English, Russian and French and as a raging extrovert, never stops being inspired by the entrepreneurs she works with. Lisa, it's so good to see you. Wonderful to see you too, Catherine. I'm really looking forward to today. Me too. So you've got a really interesting background. You were born in Moscow and then you obviously have lived most of your life in Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal background? Yeah, so I moved here as a young migrant when I was four and uh, was very much a, a nerd. So I did as much maths as possible at university, which meant I did a double degree, majoring in advanced maths, computer science and econometrics did my last semester in France, which was really, really enlightening, really much more international. And uh, one of the things I learned is that I'm very much an extrovert and like working people. So I wanted to find a career which married maths and uh, people and uh, started off on the trading floor at uh, Credit Suisse, which really had both, but they did put me in equity research sales. So much more on the people side. And you don't really have as much time for math if you're doing a sales role. And I found that over time, some of my clients started to sort of poach me over. It was very exciting uh, working in Credit Suisse. I met some of my greatest sponsors and mentors there. I got to work on IPOs like Alibaba and WiseTech and Freelancer. And I got to see some of the people I'd had overnight hackathons with launched their businesses, which was really exciting. But I did miss uh, a lot of the analysis and did end up moving over to the investing side at a hedge fund known as Montgomery Investment Management. And that really got me to do uh, a lot more uh, deep value investing, which was really, really interesting. And I really enjoyed getting into sort of a forensic accounting of businesses But I also started observing that sometimes things would look really clean and all of a sudden the whole business would sort of implode. And there was a a tiny little sensation that you got in sort of the bottom of your stomach in a meat eating that something was a little bit off. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I wanted to go really deeper on that. 
And that really drove me towards um, the uh, private market side. And I first moved to reInventure and did that in sort of a fintech space and ended up going earlier and earlier down the value chain. So moving uh, to where I am now at Albert Impact Ventures, which is really focused on that pre-seed and seed area and also much more aligned to my values in terms of impact. So we're really looking on for ventures that are trying to make the world better. Another reason I really love being in businesses from the start is you can really sort of shape the future. And in particular, I really want there to be uh, more women than Peters in the ASX 100 and 200. And I found that uh, a good culture from the start is one of the things that really determines that and more balanced leadership from the start. So it's a much more influential place to sit. And it really fits my way of thinking of going a bit longer term, and also working with people who are excited about changing the world for better. So I love it. So I'm so, I love that comment. You'd like to see, and I think the stat is that there's more people called Peter who are CEOs of ASX listed companies than there are women. And I think that's super interesting in terms of, you know, going all the way back to the inception of a company and trying to to you know, support the companies that have that robust culture that will foster a bit more inclusion. But are you actually seeing that manifest in the venture space? Because we also see lots of information about how women founders or women-led technology companies are not receiving a proportionate share of investment. Absolutely. So look, there are some pretty horrific stats out there. Solely female-founded businesses have seen another 2.6% of capital is received by them. I've seen women founders included receiving 15%. Either way, it's pretty bleak and certainly not uh, in line with, you know, the theory of talent being evenly distributed. Speaking for myself, you know, at Albert Impact Ventures, we have actually a majority of female investors in our portfolio companies. So we have been able to see some pretty incredible female founders who tend to actually outperform. I'm not saying female founders are better than male founders, but like if we're only taking 2.6% of the women and we're taking 97.5% of the men, we're probably going to get better returns from that 2.5%. So that does align with what you see in outcomes. And we really actively try and look for female founders through partnering with organisations like Scale. We try and be really inclusive in terms of our conversations. So, for example, one thing we do is we ask calibration questions. So these are questions which are designed to be a really big picture positive question that we ask all founders and also a negative question that we ask all founders. And that sort of anchors conversations to be even for both genders. Um, Another way to really change. So just pausing on that, is that because, because I think there's some research out there that says as investors, we tend to ask female founders different questions to male founders. Is that what that sort of standardisation is trying to address? A hundred percent. So it's something which I've seen a lot in the landscape and there's a lot of research to back that up. So I was really keen to make sure our process avoided that bias. So we we do ask uh, calibration questions so we can uh, at least have two. So what do you mean by calibration questions? What what do they actually look like? So every founder that presents to us, we ask two questions. One is, uh, if everything goes right for three years, what do you look like? So that's a really happy question. And it lets both females and men say what, what happens in that really good scenario. And we also ask a a negative question, which is, if your business shuts at some point in the next three years, why did that happen? 
And that means that both, regardless of your gender, you have to respond to a, a happy and a sad question. And then everything else will sort of fall between those two. But it means that uh, you're not just biasing negative questions and risk risk focused questions to one gender and you're not biasing really open-ended uh, blue sky thinking questions to the other and I think that's something which is a practice which if more VCs were to adopt that it would really act towards you know a structural change in how these are received because it's something every investor can really easily do by including that in their process. I think that's such a great question that sort of pre-mortem question like if it goes wrong Can you contemplate now why that might have happened? What's the sort of spectrum of answers you get to that question? Yeah, uh, it's really diverse. Some founders get a little bit rattled by it and uh, very much turn to that's not a possibility. Um, To me, that is always a little bit of a red flag because the reality is if you are making a venture, it is a possibility. You know, somewhere between 70 and 90% of businesses will shut. So you need to start thinking about, you know, what keeps you up at night? What are the risks there? The stronger answers to questions like that are uh, ones which are really specific risks to the business. Another common response I get to that is, I can't raise capital. But to me, that doesn't really show what's in your control. So I like uh, founders that have really thought through consciously of those risks. They still think, um, you know, blue sky. And we, you know, we ask those questions in tandem for that reason. But I think it is also important to be conscious of well, what, what are the things that can actually jeopardise what you're trying to achieve. There's some some of the sort of better, more thought out responses. I've gone off track now, but sort of thinking about your freedom to, to shape those interviews in a way that you think solicits the most insightful information. Is that partly because Alberts is quite a sort of special investor? Alberts has uh, really, really uh, amazing values and really lives up to them. And we we are very impact focused. Uh, So I do think we tend to attract founders who have that values alignment. For example, we we do focus on uh, various areas of an impact. So the four themes we look at are the environment, sustainability, mental health and well-being, arts, music, entertainment, and equality of a focus on gender. So the, the mission is essentially let's let's build a thriving planet with thriving minds, which has a vibrant culture where everyone's welcome. So founders that are trying to do that do tend to uh, have good values and be sort of missionary personalities. So I do think that I'm very privileged to work with people who really have those aspirations and those strong value sets driving them. And can you tell us a bit about the history of Alberts? It's so interesting. Uh, it's a it's a really fascinating history. So they've been around for 138 years. So one of the most patient capital firms in all of the nation. Uh, they started off uh, being entrepreneurs themselves, uh, selling sheet music, then moving into a whole range of different ventures, such as selling musical instruments. Then they went into music publishing, and they're best known for backing people like ACDC and the Easy Beats. And uh, that was a very big uh, operating part of their business. Um, There was a very difficult decision made in 2016 where most of that uh, operating business was actually sold. But the family sort of sat down and decided a few things. So decided to stay in business as a family, decided to keep backing Australian and New Zealand pioneers and decided to have a positive impact, which was always implicit, but they wanted to make that more explicit. And that led to a few things in the business. So it led to us becoming a B Corp. It led to the Tony Foundation, which really focuses on uh, music education. 
And also it led to the creation of Albert Impact Ventures, which is where I fit in as the investment manager there. And that is looking for things which are really scalable and delivering that impact. There's certainly a piece for philanthropy to fill, but if we really are going to address some of the biggest problems facing the world, such as global warming, such as, you know, the persistent gender pay gap and the much worse super gap, such as the increasing rate of mental health incidents in the younger population, and such as the state of the culture and the arts and music scene, which has just been decimated through COVID, You need things which do have very commercial applications, and often these are businesses which have that venture global mindset, but also have impact at their core. So, you know, we look for businesses where that impact is really tied to commercial outcomes. So for every dollar of revenue, I can point to sort of a unit of impact that that business is going to create. That's amazing. So, and for you personally, you've worked for, you know, big global brands like Credit Suisse, which is, you know, an international firm. You've worked for Australian-based corporate ventures like Rand Venture. What's it like working for a family? Is there something special and different or is it similar? I think it's worth noting that every family is different. <laughs> so I'm sure working for every family is is different in a similar way. Uh, one of the things which uh, Alberts does really well is governance. Um, and they've got really good systems in place to actually you know, make sure that the you know the business and the family all works uh, very well congruently. And there's a lot of care given to staff and they really have some of the best practices in that regard. Uh, so, for example, through COVID, they introduced a mental health and wellbeing incentive to encourage us to keep working on our, um, you know, more mental health through the lockdown as well as just doing our day to day. So it's a very caring culture. And, you know, it very much aligns with the types of cultures that we'd like to see founders building too. I wanted to go back to your very early history and just ask the question about being a migrant and and whether that shapes the way you think about what you want to be involved in and how you work. It's an interesting question. So I'm a nerd at heart. So I think the thing which most has shaped my brain from a scientific perspective is being bilingual. It does let you think more abstractly. There's a lot of studies to show that if you learn at least two languages by the time you're four or five, you actually end up uh, with a a bit more creativity and a bit more lateral thinking just because of the way your brain develops in those early years. So I think you'd be naive to say that that hasn't shaped a big part of me. And do you still speak Russian? Do you speak Russian? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm trilingual now. I also speak French because I've decided to learn that when, when I did my exchange. Yeah. You know, I, I've travelled a lot and I've worked in a few different countries and it definitely does give me a bit more of a global mindset. And it also highlights how, you know, how difficult it also is to move to different countries, particularly for different businesses, because there's so much more nuance in the culture and even the language. Like, for example, in Russian, there is no word for privacy. We've adopted the English word for privacy because there was no concept of privacy during the Soviet Union where a lot of the language was formed. And these like lingual gaps are really quite telling for the types of culture and the types of thoughts that people have and the ideas you have are really shaped by the language you have. It does expand your awareness of that and it also creates a bit more varying perspectives to have two different cultures within you. What about maths? So I'm obsessed with girls being stronger in 
their fluency with numbers and their confidence with numbers. And, you know, as you said, you, you wanted to pack as much maths into your undergraduate degree as possible with advanced mathematics, computer science and econometrics. Do you think that has anything to do with your background or is it just, you know, who you were when you were born? It was absolutely um, a part of my background. Uh, My dad is a nuclear physicist and my mum is an aeronautical engineer and my sister is a, a doctor of her own business. So the conversations we had at the dinner table were everything from plasma physics to space exploration, and that absolutely shaped the way I think of things. In Russian culture, math is very ingrained and important. It's sort of the most important subject. So no doubt that did have an influence. I think as as I've gotten older, I've really started to appreciate a lot more of the softer side of things and more on the EQ side. And, you know, that has also been a big part of my personality. Yeah, absolutely. It would have had an impact. (laughs) And if you were giving advice, if, you know, someone engaged you to give advice to the educational system in Australia to encourage women to have more confidence around maths particularly, I know we talk about STEM generally, is there any advice you would give? I'm really passionate about this subject. I volunteer time tutoring. I volunteer time speaking to young women in terms of why it is important to do STEM. And I think I had a few moments in my life which sort of really stood out. So I remember talking to uh, someone called Ashok Jacob, who's actually a really well-known investor, and he was a dad of uh, one of my friends at school. And he said that he looks for hires who have done as much maths as possible and are really good at that because it's such a foundational skill. And if you can do math, you can apply that to other learnings a lot better. I found I found certainly um, in math, but also computer science is very applicable in that way. And computer science really teaches a very important way of thinking. I think one thing the educational system can do better is outline how many doors math and um, computer science and all STEM can really open. Because I think at first appearance, it seems quite dry. Not everyone really wants to crunch numbers every single day, but it can lead to the most diverse careers. And I think my career is a really good example of that. I have an enormous amount of creativity and it is a very fun and fulfilling career to have. Maths has really helped with that because I can, you know, distill ideas really quickly with it. It helps me process things very, very quickly when I see a business. Uh, you know, my computer science helps me understand the tech stack. It helps me go deeper with conversations of CTOs. But it doesn't mean that I need to spend 12 hours a day sitting at my computer coding, which is certainly not the only career that doing computer science will open. And even artists are embracing, particularly in the metaverse, all of the all of the sort of more creative aspects of, of computer science. Uh, design opens so many doors. So I think more education on, I guess, the diversity of the roles which math and computer science can lead to uh, would really go a long way to making that seem, uh, or, or making it not just seem, but really art- articulating the truth of how diverse that um, outcome can be. Yeah, you mentioned how over time you've developed some more of those soft skills. I think one of the things I also really admire about you is that your written articulation is really crisp and systematic as well. So when I read your blogs on the Albert website and you wrote some stuff um, for some of your previous roles, it just has a really so accessible and easy to understand. And, And I just wonder if that's because you come from that sort of logical, mathematical way of approaching, you know, how you communicate things. 
I take that as a huge compliment because English was my worst subject. <laughs> That's something I always work on improving. I think the more you write, the more I do get comments like that. There are certainly people who are much better at articulating than I, than I am. Uh, I do try and make things as accessible as possible. I think that, you know, it really reigns true that if you, if you really understand something, you should be able to teach it and you should be able to explain it to a five-year-old. So I think if you're adding too much complexity to, you know, your, your written word, you haven't gotten to the depths of it. And I, I do think in math, you do have to go back to first principles. So it does teach you to follow that logic in a lot of ways. Um, but there's many ways to get to, you know, a good blog. And I think many different um, studies and career paths can lead there. But I think to your earlier point in terms of how we can encourage more women to embrace the power of what maths can give you, I just feel like it unlocks your potential in other domains. So it's not just being proficient in maths is an end in itself. It actually uplifts your capability in other areas. One of the other pieces of advice I've heard you communicate to founders is, you know, you've, you've sort of got to have a, a hustle mentality. You know, you've got to have the confidence to go and try stuff that you haven't tried before. You seem to have been able to do that right from the beginning of your career. Like when I look through your career history, you know, there's lots of instances where it seems like you're doing stuff without permission almost, like you, you sort of give yourself permission to go and try something, you know, raise money for charity or, or, or do things that are sort of outside the normal conveyor belt that, you know, many of us follow in our careers. Is that just because you're an extrovert or why do you think you've had that sort of hustle mentality from the beginning? Very interesting question. I think I have a lot of duality in myself as a personality. I have a lot of you know, for example, I'm a very creative person, but I am also very um, analytical and mathematical. So, for example, some of my hobbies include painting and aerial acrobatics and scuba diving. My day-to-day -day is finance and analysis. And um, I think that duality is a little bit rare. And I've always sort of thought outside the box. I mean, I guess to your earlier point, perhaps that part of that is because I grew up in different cultures but I think a part of that is also uh, innate there's a book I read called um, Quiet which talks a lot uh, uh, about sort of the way our brains are designed a bit differently um, if we're introverted or extroverted there are some elements in that where I can relate to in terms of you know I get excited by having for example loud music that works with my extroversion personality I think also some of the uh, I guess thoughts that shaped me uh, when I was growing up. So, for example, uh, there was a point where I just decided that the biggest limitations that I had were ones I'd set myself, and then I decided to just go after those one by one and break them. Uh, for example, I was scared. Uh, I had arachnophobia. So I went and uh, uh, treated that and picked up a spider and released it from my hands into the wild. I decided I wasn't good at languages, so I decided I'd do an exchange in France and do at least a subject in French. And uh, so I crushed that expectation. I was scared of heights. Now I do aerial acrobatics. So essentially anything which was in my head and was something which I could scientifically invalidate, I decided to remove. And that's given me, I guess, a license for more confidence and uh, a license to create a bit more of my own rules and freedoms, which has been very liberating for me as a person. In Australia, often, 
you know, we struggle with people who are confident and that sort of tall poppy syndrome, you know, and I think women have societal uh, expectations. Have have you pushed up against that or, or you found a way to be able to, as you say, focus on your own internal limitations, you know, rather than externalise what, you know, might be holding you back or women back? Uh, that's a great question and it, it really st- it goes to sort of a value motivation of mine. I absolutely have run into that. I guess one of my drivers is that I would hope that if in the future I have daughters, they don't have those same obstacles. So I'm happy to have that battle. I feel I'm resilient and strong enough to pave away further and I think it is on every generation to get it closer. Um, that is a core driver for me. And also sometimes if you really want something, the best way to get there isn't always a straight line. So I guess I, you know, I have worked a lot on my EQ and my um, development to sometimes go about things indirectly to get to, to where I want things to be. And the other lesson there is to be patient. So, you know, maybe you have to adjust your language to get to the same outcome. But if, if you do it well, influence is actually more powerful than just demanding things. And I think that rule goes for men and women. And I think there's a lot of ways that you can actually use society's biases to your advantage as a woman. And there's a lot to explore and learn there. And there's, you can access coaches on that. I'm certainly not, not an expert, but um, actively learning. There's things you can use to your, as your strengths, so double down on those. You said earlier that you sort of started at the very sort of big end of investment, sort of publicly traded global equities, Australian equities, and sort of got earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier until you're now at sort of seed stage. It seems like one of the attractions was that you got closer and closer and closer to the people who create value in a business, so the actual founder. What is it about working with founders that you really enjoy? Well, first thing, I'm an extrovert and founders are the most inspirational people to really be around. I get to spend my day to day working with people who have decided to put their jobs aside, put everything aside to go on a mission to make the world better. And they have put all of their energy, um, you know, their spiritual energy, their, their, their time, money, effort into doing that. I mean, it's very hard to not be uplifted by that. And all you have to do is go to a demo day and see that in action. It is very invigorating. It is also one of the hardest things in terms of the lessons that uh, you learn if you do a business, you'll have your biggest highs, you'll have your biggest lows. And it really changes people. Um, they have to go through a lot of development. You know, they might have to go through economic cycles. They might have to learn how to fire people. They might have to learn how to compete very aggressively. There's there's going to be um, lots of impossible decisions on their plate and they have to really evolve as leaders it's a very exciting place to play. To me, I know I've done a good job when a founder is really honest with me and um, comes comes up and tells me their bad news. I'm able to have that conversation and offer support. Uh, I don't believe that any part of the um, founder journey is rose-tinted glasses. There are always going to be things that go wrong. So I know that I've got an authentic relationship when I've got transparency to what is wrong. I know you've said one of the hardest parts of your job is saying no, because as you say, founders are so inspirational. I think they're often good salespeople too. You know, they, they can captivate you with their energy. What are the things that a founder has to demonstrate 
to you for you to feel really confident to make an investment in them? What do they need to do right for you to say yes? Well, particularly at the early stage, a lot of it comes down to the founder. There's a Warren Buffett quote, which I hope I'm not going to butcher, but essentially he talks about the fact that you need people who are honest, people who have energy and people who are capable. You know, those are really important qualities. I think as a founder in particular, you also need to have a lot of resilience. You need to have a right balance of being coachable, but also being able to stand your ground and be a little bit stubborn at times uh, because you should be the expert of your business more than anyone else. I think working with someone who's not honest is not nice for anyone. leads to bad outcomes. Uh, Obviously, you need to be capable and you need a lot of energy to see a business through from startup to unicorn. So you're going to need all of those uh, characteristics. In terms of the business itself, you need to be solving something that's actually a problem. Sometimes you go into, you solve something for yourself and it might not be a problem for everyone. It needs to be something that's in a big enough market to actually have those venture returns. And Alberts is looking for about 100x return, you know, in terms of the capacity to deliver that return. Is that right? Yeah, so we are looking for VC returns. So we want the capacity for 100x, but 10x would be a, a good exit as well. And it needs to have, you know, the ability to get to that market. And then obviously the solution needs to make sense and commercially it needs to make sense for unit economics need to make sense. You can't be uh, spending more per customer than the customer's giving you. Or not for long. I mean, there's some businesses that have, you know, done that. You know, Uber, I think, is an example, but you can't do that forever, um, obviously. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, and so what, in terms of some of the businesses that, you could talk about that that you've invested in that demonstrate some of those qualities are there any examples you can share I love so many of our businesses it's hard to choose it's hard to choose some to highlight what I might do is talk about a couple from different thematics just to illustrate the range of problems they're working on um, so for example we've got one business called um in our portfolio called Ulu um, they're turning seaweed into plastics uh, so an alternative to plastics They've got, you know, this really deep tech business. They've managed to recruit um, and attract some absolute world-leading talent to work on this business uh, based in Perth. People have flown over from all over the world to do this. They've they've got a very strong commercial lens. They're able to have those conversations up front and really, really hone in on their um, unit economics. And that's really important for a business which is going to have a bit of capital intensity behind it. So I'm really excited by um, that one. Something in the equality space, um, I think it's relevant to anyone in the scale, is a company called uh, Baymatol. They're looking uh, to improve outcomes for mothers and babies in obstetrics, which has had a horrible well, lack of um, investment and uh, a lack of you know, innovation in an obstetrics room. Um, there's still um, you know, very manual processes and it's not really been digitised and revolutionised. They've got a device which has achieved breakthrough designation from FDA, which means that it is truly new. The FDA has said this is the first of its kind. And what they've done is got a device which measures contractions, not just their presence, but their quality. And the first application of that is actually determining if a woman will bleed out, uh, which is called a postpartum hemorrhage, which is the leading cause of death 
some mothers. Um, they have other incoming things for the platform, but that's their first application. One of the things I love about that is it removes bias. You can look at the statistics in the US and women of colour have particularly dire outcomes. Um, some of the outcomes are actually getting worse and intervention is coming in earlier. So this is actually saying that instead of saying, well, someone is a category of risk because they're a little bit obese or a little bit older this is saying well let's actually look at how it's progressing and determine if we intervene based on that unique person as opposed to a couple of factors being a bit higher so that's something which I'm really excited about for uh, for women something in the mental health and well-being space we've got a, an investment called like family which works on combating loneliness by connecting people who have uh, they need care from disabilities or are older with carers who can spend time with them and quality time that's like family and they can get uh you know that, that more community sensation about it and uh, something in the music space uh, is uh, a company called Muso, which connects artists uh, to venues to make sure that we can have more live music in our lives. And who doesn't want that? So that's, uh, you know, that's uh, four examples, uh, which are very broad across very different themes. Um, and all those founders are doing very exciting things. You know, three of those four have female founders. <laughs> oh, that's, that's fantastic. In terms of advice either that you've received yourself that's been really valuable or that you would give to founders? Any advice that you would share? I've got two bits of advice which have been really valuable for me. The first is know your client, um, which refers to know your customer, know your anyone you're talking to, really know them. Don't talk to a VC until you've looked on their website and understand if you're a fit. You're just going to get them off-site it really comes through very quickly who has and hasn't done their homework and it's the same with your customers. And then the second piece of advice uh, is related to that and uh, I didn't like it when it was first given to me but I have really taken it on board since and it's you have two ears and one mouth. Use them in that ratio. As an extrovert, that was hard, hard advice to swallow but over time I've learned that I'm only learning when I'm listening I'm getting information from people when I'm listening. That helps me know them better to the first bit of advice. Um, and that means I can actually do things uh, much more efficiently and wisely and thought out. And I find that I tend to do better in life when I follow that advice, but it is always one which has been hard to swallow. I think particularly because there is always that thought as a woman at the back of your head being, am I just being silenced? But in general, it seems to work better when you, you think through and listen. As an investor, presumably you can never do enough. You know, there's always more investments out there that maybe, you know, someone else is investing in or that you haven't heard about or people you could meet or people you could collaborate with. What's a productivity hack to try and sort of fit it all in so you've got that capacity to do that quiet analytical work as well as doing all that sort of extrovert good work in terms of networking? Yeah, it's always a balance. There are never enough hours in the day. One of my favourite hacks is um, blocking off time to do work. In particular, I try and keep my Fridays as a no meetings day, which means that I always have time scheduled in my diary for deep work to actually do analysis on businesses. Um, unfortunately, it really is a completely meeting-free day, but at least having it intended to be that way does improve the chances and mean that I have time to actually go deeper. And things that you like to read or listen to, any recommendations? 
Uh, I have a lot of recommendations. I listen to audiobooks all the time because I think that you always have to be learning. So some of my favorites there, Atomic Habits by James Clear, if you want to get deeper of a productivity. Principles by Ray Dalio. I think that's got some really interesting investor comments, but also cultural lessons. He's, you know, one of the investors, which I really admire. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yugo uh, Now Harari. It was a really thought-provoking book. If you're interested in getting into VC, there's a few books which are just must-reads. Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Lean Startup by Eric uh, Rees. What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz. And The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. That's sort of your 101 on how to do VC um, and how to think in a VC manner. I would also call out your blog. So you've got a couple of blogs on the Alberts website. So the investor updates, the data room, like there's some really good explanations of things that I think sometimes we take for granted that people understand, but the sort of like, why is an investor update important and what should you include in it? I I would recommend people go onto the Alberts website and have a look at those blogs because I found them really helpful. Thank you. I'm glad that's useful. I think my favourite blog I wrote is actually called The Anatomy of a Company, which kind of goes into um, this little metaphor about a company as uh, an anatomical being and where the culture sits and where the product sits. That one was a really interesting sort of thought I had and I was working on for a while. And I think culture is pretty critical. So it's fun it's close to my heart (laughs) well and it's sort of a combination of your creative and analytical side and I had um I had seen while I was doing some research for today's conversation some of your artworks on blue thumb so you're really um actually (laughs) you you really do have that visual creativity as well as that sort of intellectual creativity so it's fantastic to see that in one person last question what are you really excited or optimistic about I'm really excited about actually solving these problems. So having a thriving world with thriving minds in a vibrant culture where everyone's welcome. I'm absolutely energised by some of the solutions I'm seeing from founders. I'm excited to see more and see how 10 years of work will get us further to solving these questions. Oh, I've so loved having the opportunity to um, spend some time with you. And um, yeah, I, I just really admire all the work you're doing. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much, Catherine. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.